Please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we've been making our way through this book uh, over the last few weeks, and uh, I will go ahead and tell you from the very beginning today that uh, this is probably the, the part of Philippians that gets most easily skimmed over. Are you ready? This is a travelogue, ladies and gentlemen. If you're not sure what a travelogue is, we're about to find out. So, this is about who's going, where, and when, and why. There's Timothy traveling, there's Epaphroditus traveling, Paul plans to travel. You're like, yeah, I don't… You know, there's a lot of verses devoted to this travelogue. Why, why is this in Scripture? Is this really important for us? Well, yes, it is divinely inspired. It is no less divinely inspired than anything else in the book of Philippians. And there actually are great things to find for us today in this inspired travelogue. I just like saying that. That just, that's nice. So, I hope you will enjoy this today. Uh, it's it's going to be sort of interesting to try to think through how, first of all, what Paul's really saying, and then secondly, how we are to apply these things to our lives today. Um, let me just, I'm going to show you a couple of slides here, uh, provided the slides work. I never know when I load slides onto these things if they're actually going to come through. But um, basically, what you will see is uh, right here, th- this is, um, I thought I would finally show you. This is the city of Philippi today, ladies and gentlemen. Not, not quite as booming of a place as it was back 2,000 years ago. But um, it, Philippi, this, this is the archaeological remains. There's a big mountain right there to the right. There's an amphitheater just off screen to the right. And I, I know you're, you can't really see this, but uh, this is taken from a video. And if the video were to play, I can't show it to you. But if the video, this is a drone flight, right? So the drone keeps going toward this street. That street is exactly where the main road was in Philippi back then, and it's still there today. And behind some trees at the top corner of that road on the right side of the road is, are the remains of what most people think are the, it was the prison, essentially. It may have eventually, it may have at one point been a cistern holding water, and then it was later turned into a prison. But this is very possibly the place where Paul was when that earthquake happened, remember? In Acts 16. So, let me show you the next slide. You can see here, uh, Paul's prison is what, it's been, is what it's been named. If you walk up these uh, stairs and you look down, it sort of drops down into this dark little area. Uh, much of it is caved in now, but many people think that is the very spot where the earthquake happened. And if you're wondering about earthquakes in this region, do they still happen? Well, this entire city was destroyed by an earthquake uh, about several hundred years after Paul was there. So, earthquakes were definitely common in the region. Let me take you to the next slide. This is an artist's reconstruction of what the city would have looked like at the time when Paul was writing, right around that time. You can see their walls. You can see them going up that hill, and you can see the amphitheater included in there. And uh, that is the city to which Paul is writing. This is the place where Paul was beaten, put in stocks, imprisoned, singing at midnight when the earthquake happened and the Philippian jailer was converted. It is also possible this little stream just outside the river is the very place where Lydia was with those other women who were by the stream uh, for a time of prayer when they were led to the Lord. But now I want to I kind of zoom out. So, let's go to the next slide, and we'll keep this slide up, I, I hope, for the rest of the sermon here. I'm sure you recognize the infamous boot there, right, ladies and gentlemen, you know where you are. And so, if you look at this uh, red line here, it starts in Philippi on the far right, it goes all the way at, to Rome, and what you're, what you're looking at here was one of the Roman roads that allowed travel. So, during today's sermon, we're going to be talking about that red line because it's kind of the center of attention today. And there is… let me just sort of paint the picture first, and then we'll read about it in more detail. So, Paul is now in prison out there in Rome, and the Philippians over here want to care for Paul. So, if you're in prison in the first century in Rome, 
It's not like our prisons today where there's, you know, you get meals for free, you know, they're included in the, in the prison. That did not happen. Uh, your physical needs were almost entirely taken care of by people you knew. So family members would take care of your meals. Friends would send you uh, ability to have means to survive. And so the Philippians find out that Paul is in Rome and he needs some assistance. Remember Paul Scott's sermon from last Sunday, I know how to abase and I know how to abound. He's talking about his physical circumstances. And they send a guy named Epaphroditus. He may have had other traveling companions. Very frequently when you travel with money, back then you would have a group of people. He may have been the leader. But Epaphroditus would have, would have traveled the, it's called the Via Ignatia. That's the road over here that goes all the way over to the sea. There's about a 360-mile journey to get to the ocean there. And then you cross the ocean. It's about 90 miles across the water there. And then you get back and you go the Via Appia, the, the, the Appian Way, which takes you all the way to Rome, which is another 350 miles. Just driving that would sound miserable. And then the boat part too. I mean, that, that, does not, that does not sound like a fun journey. And this is back in the first century. Now, admittedly, the Roman roads were really good compared to before that time. But we're talking about perhaps a six-week one-way journey. Uh, we're not exactly sure how long it would have taken, but it would have taken probably more than a month to make a one-way journey here. And we've got people going back and forth between Paul and the Philippians during this story. So keep in mind, you're dealing with a 800-mile journey one way. 800 miles, one way, no car. Let's just keep that part front and center. No automobile, okay? So this is quite, uh, quite a task that is undertaken. So Epaphroditus takes some money, whatever all, maybe, I don't know what all they gave him, but at least money would have been included for Paul. He travels 800 miles, and very likely on the way to get to Paul, he becomes ill. Uh, we don't know if it's on the way or after he gets there, but it's, a lot of people think it's on the journey. He became very ill. Uh, in fact, he almost died from his illness. If he had people traveling with him, he must have sent someone back to Philippi to tell them that Epaphroditus is not doing well. And so Epaphroditus arrives at Rome, and he gets on the brink of death while with Paul, and then he recovers, and then we're going to go from there. So that's just kind of, I'm setting that up with Epaphroditus. Now let me just read today's passage. This is Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. And this again is the word of the Lord. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life 
to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Uh, just look with me at 4.18. I think Scott may have read it last Sunday. 4.18, this is the only other verse we have about Epaphroditus in the Bible. In 4.18, Paul says to the Philippians, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, to God our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there, there you go. The, the, this, these are the major characters. So today we're going to be looking at three individuals, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. I'm just going to go, sort of go in that order. So Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And I'm going to borrow a couple words from another commentator. So I'm going to look specifically at Paul's submission, Timothy's selflessness, and Epaphroditus' sacrifice. Paul's submission, Timothy's selflessness, and Epaphroditus' sacrifice. So we're going to start here. If you remember Greg's uh, very helpful sermon a few weeks ago on Jesus as the ultimate uh, su suffering servant for us, Paul is basically saying, listen, we need to be like that. We need to be like Jesus. Now, all of us say, we, we, we know we're supposed to be like Jesus, but uh, I heard one illustration. I, I read one illustration this week. Imagine uh, Dennis Johnson's commentary. He said, imagine there's a, a guy who's totally out of shape. Uh, maybe he's, he's a little bit older in life, and he's watching the Olympics. And uh, he sees some Olympic runner just absolutely, like you've seen Bolt-like, just like incredible speed. And he's watching it with the bag of potato chips next to him on the couch. And he's like, next Olympics, it's going to be me. Usain Bolt, step aside. They will put the gold medal around my, around my neck. I am going to make this thing happen. You would all look at this guy and say, um, excuse me, I think you're, you're, you're falling into a little bit of a deranged syndrome here. I mean, maybe you can get into some jogging or running. You're not going to be winning any gold medals here. And Dennis Johnson said, listen, when, when, when we sometimes compare ourselves to Jesus, He is so far beyond us that sometimes it can just, we, we can be tempted sinfully to go, well, who can really be like that? I mean, come on, that is just an unattainable goal. Well, it is true that to be perfect as your Father is perfect, and to, to reach that level is something we will never fully attain before the resurrection or before, our, before the return of Christ. That's true. But Paul is worried that that could become an excuse, perhaps, for laziness. You see? You're like, well, I'm, I'm never going to be Jesus fully. I'll, I'll always be, you know, I'm going to be… The gap between the guy on the couch and the Olympic athlete winning the gold medal is smaller than the gap between me and Jesus, okay? Like, way smaller. And so, we, we could sometimes have a wrong view of this, like, yeah, of course we're supposed to be like that, but no one's really like that. That's why in books of the Bible, like James, when he says, Elijah was a man of like passions as we are, and he prayed, and things happened. You also can pray like him. You see what James is doing? He's saying, don't think of these things as out there somewhere absolutely unattainable. You can't even make progress. No. If Elijah by the Spirit could do this, you by the Spirit can begin to do similar kinds of things. So, what does Paul do? He, of course, gives Jesus as the gold standard, absolutely 100%, and He must be our foundation. But he doesn't say, and the rest of us can't imitate this at all. Paul, in a humble way, presents himself as an example of being Christ-like. Secondly, he presents Timothy, and third, he, pre he presents Epaphroditus. 
I'm going to focus on Paul's submission to the Lord, but look with me at verse 17. Excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 2. Paul says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Does that sound somewhat like Jesus? If I'm giving my life for your faith, it makes me joyful. Isn't that like Jesus? Jesus gladly, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. So, Paul is giving himself as a Christ-like model. But there's more. Look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered of news of you. And then look at verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. We can almost miss it, can't we, here? Do you see how Paul keeps throwing in phrases like, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy? Or verse 24, I trust in the Lord that I myself will come shortly. Do you see the in the Lord phrases? He uses it again in 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. But we, it's almost, we almost, our brains don't even sometimes pick up how often Paul says things like this. Every sentence almost, he says, in Jesus, in the Lord, in accordance with God, by Christ. Like he's always saying these things. What is going on here? Paul is, Paul is saying, listen, here are my plans. My plans are that I'm going to send Timothy to you, and then I'm going to be set free from prison, not executed, and I'm going to come see you too. Now, Paul, Paul knows that not, his plans do not always come to fruition. So, what does he say? He says, in the Lord, I plan this. I, I will come to you in the Lord. In other words, Paul is thinking up the best plan he can think of. He's using wisdom, discernment. He is doing what he should do. He's not being lazy. He's coming up with a good plan. And what does he say? Every time he states his plan, he says, if it's the Lord's will. I'll do this in the Lord. If the Lord desires it, I'll do it. And so, what, what we can learn is, man, th this is easier to say than to live. Let me just throw out, how, you know, let me just throw out a couple. Three weddings involved. You guys, uh, Zach and Caitlin, Wes and Holly, all three of you guys had to navigate COVID and wedding plans simultaneously. And I, I got to kind of sit around and I, I got to see you guys process this. And y'all, all of y'all had to make difficult decisions the, the way that you had envisioned your weddings to be and when you wanted them to be. Things got changed around very quickly. What, what you're seeing is oftentimes we have plans and yes, we should plan and we should do the best we can. But then in the providence of God, things do not always go the way we had planned. And to see members of our church in humility, in love for the Lord, in a desire to do what is best, making really difficult decisions about one of the most important days in their lives was a humbling and amazing thing to watch up close. To, to see people make sacrifices and to do what they thought was best at the time with what was going on in order to serve others and to love others showed a submission to God's sovereign will. They didn't understand it, we don't fully get it. But they were able to show that submission and to show that love and that wisdom. And Paul is like that. Paul says, listen, here's my plan, but it's in the Lord. It's in His hands. And if it doesn't turn out the way I had planned, I gladly submit to what the Lord may bring about, even if it is difficult or even if it is painful. So, Paul is showing us a real-life example of submission. Number two, we'll spend more time on these last two men here. Number two, Timothy's selflessness. There is so much in this paragraph. Let me read it again, 19 to 24. 
I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I want to read um, a story here, brief uh, story. Tell me if you can relate to this illustration. To give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think that giving our all to the Lord is, is like taking a $1,000 bill, like our life, and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. But the reality for most of us is that He sends us to the bank to cash the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. We listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of sending him away. We go to a committee meeting. We give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ is not glorious as we think. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It is harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. I think there is a lot of wisdom in that illustration. When you talk about doing something really risky and radical and crazy, there is a time and a place for that. There is, and that, that can be a wonderful thing. And when Jim Elliott is speared to death, reaching uh, the Aka tribes, that is a glorious moment of martyrdom. And, and, and that is something we should commend and we should think about and be inspired by. But let's be honest, probably for most of us, a radical life given to Jesus is going to look like changing that diaper. It's going to look like getting up a little earlier than you want to. It's going to look like opening your Bible when you're exhausted and you don't want to that night. It's going to look like praying when you'd rather think about something else. It's going to look like turning off the TV and giving yourself to prayer for a loved one rather than being entertained or vegging out longer than you need to be. It's going to look like going, okay, I just want to go home today. I don't want to be at work any longer, but this person clearly is in need. This person clearly is discouraged, and I feel like I need to stay and speak a word of encouragement to this person. Those are the moments where we give our life away for Jesus. Uh, Timothy, uh, much of Timothy's life would not have looked particularly glorious in some ways, and yet he gave his life away by caring genuinely for the needs of others. And so, 25 cents at a time, 50 cents at a time over the long haul is how we give our lives for Jesus. And I, I hope you understand what I'm saying, but th there is a danger of sort of raising this sort of overly radicalized version of the Christian life and saying, come on, let's do some big thing right now. Maybe, maybe that is what you're called to do. But my guess is much more difficult than that, is, is loving your spouse and your children consistently, loving your roommate consistently when the dishes have not been done, when, when the vacuuming did not get done, right? When the person broke their, you know, they said they were going to be somewhere and they didn't get there on time, being gracious and forgiving them. That's 
normal, real, radical Christian living, is, is graciously giving our life away 25 cents at a time. And that's what Timothy was all about. So, let's, let's look at some of the specifics here. Paul says in verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, l- listen to this. That word concerned, you can't see that in most English translations. It's the exact same Greek word that Paul uses in chapter 4 to say, do not be anxious about anything. Same word, concerned. Now, isn't that strange? In chapter 4, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Here, he's boasting over Timothy because of his anxiety, his concern for others. You go, wait, Paul, which is it? Are we supposed to be anxious for others? Or are we not supposed to be anxious? And this is where theology really happens, is when you take two verses that just sound like they're saying opposite things, and you don't throw your Bible away, you breathe, sit down, and think about it. Paul's clearly saying there is a kind of concern for others that is Christ-like. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He cared about them. He wept over Jerusalem. He had real concern and love for others. But did Jesus' concern move over the line into sinful unbelief in God's sovereignty? Never. And so, Paul says, listen, there is a kind of concern for others that is good. I mean, again, I'm talking about kids here, but just with my, with my own kids, loving them, wanting them to love the Lord as they grow up, that should be a concern, an anxiety that weighs on me and is appropriate, but it should not drag me into a doubting of God's goodness or an unbelief in God. And so, concern is not bad, but sinful anxiety is where we cross the line, and we need wisdom to know it's hard, isn't it? When are we doing one, and when are we doing the other? So, Paul is concerned about others. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You say, Paul, you just said everybody is a terrible Christian. What do you say? (laughs) They all seek their own interests. Well, Paul, when he says all, he doesn't mean every Christian who's ever lived. He's probably talking about those people he mentioned in chapter 1. Remember those? They were preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, not out of uh, a desire for others' goods. And so, Paul says, Timothy is not like those. He really cares about other people. Let me just ask about this for a second here. So, I mean, you've been around these people who are like Timothy. Timothy sincerely, if if you met Timothy, if he came in the door, first of all, you'd say, how are you still here? But the second thing you'd say is, Timothy, let, let, let me talk to you for a minute. And Timothy would want to talk about how, how are you? What, what's going on in your life? He'll be asking questions. And, and there, man, this church is just full of people who care about others like this. You really want to know how your life is going. Not, not just telling what's going on with me, but hearing what's really going on with you. And not just always in the superficial way, but digging in and wanting to know about another person's life, being genuinely concerned about their interests. This goes without saying, but Jerry, who's, Jerry, you can plug your ears if you're watching right now. Uh, Jerry is sort of the gold standard for me on this. He, he, he can meet someone. I think Scott, one of the first times he met you, you didn't even hardly know him. This is many years ago. And Scott at the time was working for a coffee company and uh, roasting coffee. You can talk to Scott about that another time. And uh, after, I remember like a couple, like a year or two went by and Jerry sees Scott again. It's like, how's the coffee roasting going? And remembered like all the details about it. And I'm like, Jerry, you put us to shame, sir. You put us to shame. So, I can't 
can't even remember what I was doing last month or last, like, last week. He remembers what everyone else was doing last year. So th- that kind of genuine concern for the welfare and the life of other people and, and spiritually. How are you doing spiritually in your walk with the Lord? These are ways in which Timothy was like Christ in his selflessness. Look at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So, you remember sons back then? If you were a son and your dad was a farmer… I can guess what you were going to be when you grew up. You were going to be a farmer. Uh, if, you're, if your dad uh, was a baker, there's a 90 plus percent chance you would be a baker. Why? Because instead of going away to school or going away to college, you would normally be trained in the uh, business of your father. You would learn it from him himself, and then you would pass it on to your children as you got older. And so, being a son wasn't mainly about genetics. You could be adopted, and you could be just as much a son or a daughter. This wasn't about DNA being passed down. This is about habits and ways of living and ways of doing things that are passed down so that the son begins to act like and look like dad, right? He's just like his father. He does that just the way his father would have done that. And so, Timothy, who didn't have a believing dad, you guys remember this? Uh, in Acts 16, his mother was a Jewish woman, his dad was a Gentile, not a believer, and so Timothy did not grow up with a believing father, and Paul became his spiritual adoptive father. He, he, I'm going to train him up. And so, Paul began training Timothy. I just got to add a little note here. I, I know this is debated, and there's no one really knows the answer. You ready for a little side tangent here? So, First and Second Timothy, we read from it at the beginning of the service, those letters written around 64 to 67 A.D. Now, just hang with me here. Paul calls Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 or 5. He says, I think it's 4, he says, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, right? That's the famous youth group verse if you grew up, right? Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Well, Timothy, a young man would have been considered around the age of 30-ish, okay? Uh, so, Timothy was probably close to my, my age, and uh, he could have been in his early 30s. And Paul started working with Timothy about 12 years earlier than that letter was written. That letter was written in the mid-60s. He started working with Paul in the early 50s, okay, if you look at Acts 16, which means Timothy could have been 19 years old when Paul started working with him. He could have been 18. He could have been 20. We're not sure of the exact age. People debate this, but Paul could have been a late teenager. So, just a a word to the younger guys in the room. Uh, Just, I want you to hear this. Don't ever think Christianity is something that your parents do, but that you don't do. Don't ever buy into this thinking of like, that's what I'll do when I get older. You know, I'll get serious about Jesus, but there's other things I kind of want to be preoccupied with now. No, no, no. No matter what your age… Even if you are younger, the Lord can use younger people, men and women, in astonishing ways, from the mouth of babes and infants, right? The Lord can use young people in a great way for His kingdom. And so, I'll say that verse to you seriously. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set the believers an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. And so, Timothy was being used and molded by God from perhaps his late teenage years. Now he's, later on, he'll have authority in, in the church in his 30s, and Paul, he is, he's just like his dad. He is duplicating Paul's lifestyle in so many ways. So, Paul knows, I can't come see you yet, 
But when Timothy comes to see you, I'll be there. You see? Timothy is me. I'm, I'm duplicating myself through discipleship. Just, just to kind of prove my point here, hold your spot and just go a, a couple books to the right to 1 Thessalonians. I just want to read an extended passage here in 1 Thessalonians because this, this Paul and Timothy relationship is so wonderful and it's all over the New Testament. I want you to see another example of it. So, 1 Timothy 3, bear with me as I read the first eight verses here. I shouldn't say bear with me before I read the Bible. I should say celebrate with me as I read Scripture. That's what I should say. Forgive me for that. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, Paul says, therefore, when we, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left in Athens, not, not Georgia, ladies and gentlemen, Le- left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent, that is Timothy, to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Do you see how this works? Paul is busy. He takes his protege, Timothy, sends him over to the Thessalonians. He finds out that things are going really well. They're growing. Their their, their love is abounding. Timothy comes back to Paul and says, great news. And Paul says, now I'm really alive. Now I experience real life since you're standing firm in the Lord. Again, in both letters, you see Paul has tied his joy to the spiritual good of the saints that he loves. So you can flip back to to, to Philippians 2, but I want to try to explain this for a moment. What is love? Love is not some kind of, you know, you remember the word stoicism, right? Like somebody has like no emotion, they suppress their emotion, they act like they have no feelings. Paul is the furthest thing from a stoic. Paul says, when you guys are thriving spiritually, I'm rejoicing. And then he'll say in other places, when you're, when you're falling apart, when things are not going well, it grieves me. A sign of spiritual maturity is when your joy is tied to the spiritual progress of those you love. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. You ache when they're not growing. You ache when they're moving backwards spiritually. You, your heart breaks for them. Remember Romans 9, I have unceasing anguish for my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then when you're growing, now we really live since you're standing fast in the Lord. Th- that's the kind of attitude Paul and Timothy had. So, so look with me back here, Philippians 2. Look at verse 23 again. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will come also. All right, keep, we're going to keep going here. Uh, we're going to move on to Epaphroditus as the, uh, Epaphroditus' sacrifice is the focus here. Look at 25 with me. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all 
and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Now, can I just pause there? <laughs> you might want to read that verse a second time to catch what he just said. If I was Epaphroditus, and I was near, I mean, I get like a headache, and I'm like bemoaning it for like 12 hours, okay? I just, I, I have no, I just, it's bad, okay? So, Epaphroditus, he is on the verge of dying. And back in those days, when you're on the verge of dying, you don't normally come back from the verge. You know what I'm saying here? There, there wasn't, you don't go to the emergency room, right? You, if you're on the verge of death, very often you will pass away. And so, he comes right to the verge of physical death, and he is distressed. You say, well, wouldn't we all be distressed? He's not distressed because he's sick. He's distressed because you heard that he was sick. So you get this, the home church in Philippi sends their beloved Epaphroditus with all these gifts for Paul. He travels 800 miles, perhaps getting very sick on the way, or at least around that time. He gets to Rome, risking his life in the process. He's with Paul, perhaps on the verge of death and about to maybe not recover. And he is really distressed. Why? Because a messenger has gone back and told the Philippians that Epaphroditus may die. And he knows that's going to distress them, and he can't stand the thought of them being distressed over him dying. That's love. I mean, if I'm sick, all I think about, I'll be honest, if I'm sick, who I think about is me. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm like, Lord, please make it go away. Please make the whatever it is stop. You know, that, that's the way I am. Epaphrodite is on the verge of dying, and he is distressed because his home church knows he's far away and may not come back. And he knows that's going to distress them and cause all kinds of emotional difficulty for them, so he cares and he's distressed for them. Amazing. The word for distressed, very strong word, only used outside of this letter to describe Jesus in Gethsemane, in agony and distress, an extraordinarily strong word used there. Paul calls him, and just, just so you know, for the sake of time, we still got a little ways to go. You ready? Okay, so we're going to just go a little bit longer here. Just want to warn you. Uh, so, Epaphroditus, uh, he is called five things here by Paul in verse 25. Number one, he's called my brother. Can I just stop on that one? His name, Epaphroditus, if you have a study Bible, you may have this down there. It, it comes from the word Aphrodite, you know, the, the goddess. He, Epaphroditus means basically one loved by Aphrodite. You know what that means about his childhood? non-Christian parents. That's what that means. He's named after a false god. And so, he grows up in some kind of Gentile, pagan, idolatrous home, and somewhere along the way, he becomes a believer. Now, get this. Paul grows up, Saul of Tarsus, the most committed Pharisee, killing Christians. Can you get two more different people on earth than a guy named after Aphrodite and the guy who is a Pharisee killing Christians? Those are the most opposite people on, in the world. And what does Paul say? You are my brother. That's what the gospel does. The gospel takes this person over here and this person over here as far apart as could be. I mean, in that world, you can't get more hostile to each other than these two people, naturally. And they are brothers in the Lord. Number two, his fellow worker and fellow soldier. That's two and three. Paul does not here flaunt himself as being above Epaphroditus. He's like, you are my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. I mean, I can't help. Paul's thinking of these Roman soldiers that he's talking to. He's got a Roman soldier three feet to his left and three feet to his right. I think I just pointed the wrong direction there, but three feet to his right, three feet to his left. Paul, Paul's thinking about Roman soldiers, okay? And he's going, listen, you're like a soldier for the Lord. Our enemy is spiritual. We're not fighting people. We're fighting principalities and powers by His Spirit and fighting our own sin. But there is a battle, and you almost, we almost lost you physically uh, in this battle, and we're sending you home to see you be restored. 
He also calls him your messenger and minister. That word, your messenger, this may surprise you, is the word apostolos in Greek. It's the word apostle. You say, wait, is he like one of the 12 apostles? Is he with Paul? No, no, no. The word apostle, there are capital A apostles in the New Testament, like Peter, James, John, and Paul. And then there are lowercase a apostles. You know what apostle means? To be sent. And all it means is the church sent him on a mission to give this to Paul. He was a lowercase a apostle sent from the church in Philippi, and he ministered to Paul's need. Now, look at verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I thought about that a lot this week. Paul is the joy guy, isn't he? This is Philippians. He talks about joy all over the place, and here he talks about sorrow upon sorrow. Now, we need a biblical view of joy and sorrow. It's not pick or choose, right? This is a both and. Paul says he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians. I'm sorrowful, but I'm always rejoicing. These things can live together in a human heart. And, and what Paul says here is, you know, you might have expected Paul to say this, Epaphroditus almost died, and that would have been far better. He would have departed and bent with Christ, and we shouldn't be anxious about anything. We should pray, and we should never have anxiety about anything, and we should just rejoice always. And so, there was no sorrow about him almost dying. Is that what Paul says? No. He says, listen, if he dies, does he go be with Jesus? Yes. Is that better for him? Yes. But is that real loss to us left behind? Yes. We'll see him again one day. But there is real biblical warrant for grieving at the loss of a Christian brother or sister. I hope this is obvious to all of us. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, before he, 30 minutes before he raised him from the dead, wept. That's a model for us as believers. There is nothing to be embarrassed about, about grieving over the loss of a loved one. It is right, healthy, and good, and holy to mourn the loss of someone that we love, a relative or a friend who dies. And Paul says, had he died, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. And he's not neglecting the other truths of Scripture. He's saying there is real grief at the loss of a brother or sister in Christ. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he ne nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. A couple things here. Number one, honor such men, honor such women, right? Honor, honor such men and women, believers who model these things. Our, our culture likes to honor certain people, doesn't it? And the culture, its standards for who to honor are not biblical standards. Almost everyone who gets honor in our culture is either incredibly rich incredibly physically attractive, incredibly famous, you know, something like that, celebrity status. We honor those who meet what we think are the most important things in life. And we need to be very careful. I think we are influenced by these things more than we think. And biblically, we need the right kind of models to, be, to, to have as people we honor. Um, it says He nearly died. This, this, I did not know about this. The, the words nearly died, these two Greek words, are used only one other time in the whole Bible, and it's in verse 8. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Same exact words in Greek. So, 
Epaphroditus came to the point of death. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Is there a reason why he duplicates the same two words in the same chapter? Yes, Epaphroditus was modeling the willingness to die for others in the cause of Christ. He was a picture in real life flesh and blood of what Jesus had done uh, for us. When it says honor such men, we need to esteem these people, hold them up as models. I hope that you have in your life great models of Christianity, of what Christ-likeness looks like, that we can begin to pattern our life after. I won't go through all these, but I can just mention them briefly. Um, just one example, a friend of mine, Vic Doss from uh, my previous church, a good, good friend of mine still to this day. About 10 years ago, I would start hanging out at his house. He had four kids, three boys and a girl. They're maybe eight to 16 years old-ish at the time. And I just would sit there for hours. I, I probably annoyed them. I was over at their house all the time. And in the evenings, I would just sit there, and we would talk, and we'd talk about the Bible, talk about our lives, and then I would watch him, you know, play, play with Abby, who was eight, you know, play around with her on the floor and, like, laugh with her, and then maybe take one of the sons and discipline him in the, in the garage, and they won't say who, and then he comes back. And I just said, saw him loving his family up close and personal, and I was, you know, single. I was in my early 20s, and that was an incredible, you know, some things are better caught than taught right? That was an incredible way to see what does it look like to be a loving husband, a loving father? What is it like to interact with boys versus girls? What's it like to have teenage boys? What's it like to have a preteen girl? What's it, what's it like to love as a father? And so, that's one example. There are thousands of kinds of examples. I mean, I think of how my dad uh, prepped for sermons my whole life. He took sermon preparation so seriously. He spent so much time every week working on the sermon. It's an inspiration to Scott and I because we saw it up close, and it, it shows me what it means when Paul says to Timothy to, to be a worker. Who, who proves himself, who, who works hard, who is not needing to be ashamed. So we need to find models in our life that can demonstrate these things. And lastly, I will, I will close with this. Epaphroditus went, as you can see here, these 800 miles, he went from Philippi to Rome at the risk of his life. Jesus came from heaven to earth at the cost of his life. Epaphroditus knew he may not come back, but he was able Jesus knew that He would be crucified, although innocent, in the place of sinners and die under God's judgment. And then He would be buried and raised to new life, and He would ascend into heaven. And so, these little models that we've been looking at are wonderful, but they are no replacement for the real thing, that Jesus is the one true Savior of humanity. And if you in this room will turn from sin and trust in Jesus' finished work, you can have forgiveness a right standing with God, and never ever have any of your sins brought up again because they have been canceled by the blood of the Lamb. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You for this church. Thank You for the love for Your Word that I see in Your people that shows me how significant Your Word is. Thank You for these little acts of service and little sacrificial acts of love that I've just seen consistently for nearly these five years now. Lord, thank You for these little reflections of who You are and who Your Son Jesus is. God, I pray for our church that we would see this more and more that we would see more love for each other, more of a commitment to Your truth than ever before, 
more of an excitement and a joy over the things of God. And Lord, I, I pray that You would help us with distractions. Our emotions and our thoughts get distracted by so many things, many of them good. But Lord, help us not to be distracted from the best things, the most central things, the most important things. Help us to focus on those and help us to love others well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.